Welcome to the second night of Cross Life. <clears throat> it's so good to have you all here tonight and to be able to worship with you guys. Um, hopefully you guys are all back into the swing of things. I was just talking to Fred Nealon and he said it felt good to be back into uh, the swing of things with school going and Bible study and other things have started back up. I, I love being back into the daily routine of school and work just because it keeps me, it keeps me disciplined and causes me to put my nose down and, and grind and um, I'm sure it does the same for you. Uh, my name's Deontay, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm on staff here at Cross Life, and it's a joy of mine to be able to open up the Word of God with you guys all tonight uh, and to learn from it. Uh, the series on the church really excites me. It does, as, as I'm sure it does for you as well. Uh, you know, being a Christian can really be boiled down into two words, and those two words are Christ follower. Uh, the Greek word from which the word Christian is derived is defined as such. The word Christian, many of you know, is actually used several times in the Bible. Uh, the first place being in Acts chapter 11. Uh, the individuals of the first Gentile church in Antioch uh, received this name from, from some outsiders. And what these outsiders who looked on to them noticed was that these individuals, they talk like walk like and spoke like Christ. And obviously that makes sense because that's what a Christian does. Uh, they're imitators of Christ. Uh, they love the things of Christ. They want to be like Christ in every facet of life. John reminds us of this very thing in 1 John 2, 6. He says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I'll read that verse again, 1 John 2, 6. Many of you know it. Whoever says he abides in him, him being Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In, in other words, if anyone says that he's a Christ follower, he must live like Christ. And the reason I make mention of this to begin this message is because Jesus Christ, listen to this, he loves his bride. He loves the church. And consequently, those who follow him ought to love the church. Uh, this is essential for us to keep in the forefront of our minds as we go throughout the semester. As we sit here at Cross Life, week in and week out, it is my prayer that we would love the church more, that I would love the church more. Jesus Christ, whom most of you would call Savior and Lord, love his bride, so much that he sacrificed himself for her. Ephesians chapter 5. And we as his followers and his imitators ought to love her sacrificially as well. Are you doing that? Do you love the church of Christ? If you would answer yes to that question, I want to ask one more question to you. What evidence do you have to show for it? Uh, the topic that we have the privilege of drawing our attention to tonight is the beginning of the church. And because of our subject for tonight, what I want to do for a brief introduction, and you can see that on your outline if you're following through your outline, is I want to talk about what the church actually is. It's often the understanding of most individuals, believers and unbelievers alike, that the church is simply a building. A building where people gather to sing songs, 
listen to sermons and pray. And though I don't completely disagree with that idea, the biblical understanding of church is actually quite different. The word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. Maybe some of you heard that word before, which means assembly or gathering. The root meaning of that word ekklesia has nothing to do with the building, absolutely nothing. But rather, listen to this, a people. Listen to this article that I read concerning this topic. The author asks a question in this article, and it goes like this. What is a church? Is it the stained glass windows or welcome bell mounted in the steeple? Is it the, sh- the straight back pews or scent of incense wafting in the narthex? Sunday school classrooms or spaghetti dinners in the basement? If you view a church as a building, what happens when it goes away? This is a great question that he poses. He then goes on in an article to state a 2011 statistic which basically revealed that a lot of church buildings that previous year uh, were foreclosed. And he writes about that saying, it is heartbreaking to be sure. These beautiful historical buildings hold the echoes of hope and salvation for many throughout the years. But God's church is greater than the bricks and the mortar that hold his disciples. I'll read again what he said. He says, but God's church is greater than the bricks and the mortar that hold his disciples. Amen. He's spot on, biblically speaking. The church is not a building, but rather a people. A people who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an assembly of individuals who have been given one spirit and who have one Lord and who share in one faith. It's the glorious establishment that Jesus told his disciples he would build and nothing would prevail against it. It's the makeup of individuals who, as we learned last week from Matt, are under the headship of Christ. It's the body of Christ. Scripture often calls it the household of God, the daughter of Zion, the city of the living God. And as many of you know, especially those of you who are married, the church is the beautiful and precious bride of Christ. Let me draw your attention to its beginnings in Acts chapter 2. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. It's right at the beginning or sort of the end of the Bible in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. And I'll start in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and the rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in each other's tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There were about 120 believers, including disciples, gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem when this event takes place. Uh, Prior to this, the Lord Jesus had just appeared to them and instructed them not to leave Jerusalem. Uh, They had received a command from him, which we know as the Great Commission. But they could not go out and fulfill that Great Commission yet. 
And the reason for that was because they were ill-equipped at, the, at that point in time. They needed a supernatural force within them if they were to accomplish all that the Lord had instructed them to accomplish. That supernatural force was the Holy Spirit. And that comes in verse 4 of chapter 2. And immediately after the Spirit was given, they began to do what God commanded them to do, which was proclaim his mighty works to the world. And most of Acts 2 is specifically the Apostle Peter doing that very thing, proclaiming the word of God to a large audience, men and women alike, and they began to repent and believe in Jesus. And we pick up the story in verse 42. Look at Acts 2, 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the disciples or through the apostles. Verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. This event that occurs here in chapter 2 was monumental. Never before among the people of God had such an event taken place. All individuals who were present on the day of Pentecost witnessed the beginning of an establishment that never before existed. They witnessed the beginning of the church. And so what I want to devote most of our time tonight is talking about the fact that the church actually had a beginning. Contrary to the popular thinking, even in the Christian world, which says that there was church before the coming of Christ, church didn't actually exist until Jesus had left, left this earth. Did you know that? And I recognize that that idea might be new to a lot of you here, and you might be wondering, well, was there no such thing as church in the Old Testament? Uh, were there not groups of believers in the Old Testament gathered together? Was that not church also? That's a good question. And to plainly answer th those questions now, the people of God gathered before Christ or before Christ set foot on earth, never before had anything taken place like this in Acts chapter 2. This event in Acts 2 was unique. It was different, and there are two major things that made it different. There were two distinctive characteristics of the church that made its existence unique, and the first was the indwelling of the Spirit of God in its members. We just read the beginning of Acts chapter 2 where Luke writes that the believers who were gathered together on the day of Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit and they all began to speak in different, different languages or different tongues, that, ladies and gentlemen, was something that never occurred before that day. Never occurred. And what I am not saying is that the Spirit of God didn't dwell in the people of the Old Testament, because that did occur. That did occur. But never did the Holy Spirit dwell in all believers for all time. This was new. 
See, rather than dwelling in all believers everywhere, the Holy Spirit only dwelt in some in the Old Testament. And rather than dwelling in them indefinitely, he was only in some temporarily. Let me give you a couple examples of this in the Old Testament. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 10. <clears throat> it's located toward the front of your Bibles. You have the first five books of the, New Test- of the Old Testament, and then you have Joshua, Judges, and then 1 Samuel. We're going to look at chapter 10. Here in chapter 10, you have Saul, many of you know this, being anointed to be the very first king of the nation of Israel, and along with being the king of Israel came certain perks. And one of those perks was the Spirit of God. Look at what Samuel tells Saul in verse 6 of chapter 10. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Again, as king of Israel... Saul was to receive the Spirit of God, and he was to become a changed man. And that comes to pass in the next couple of verses. Look at verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. Saul received a new heart, and he also received the Spirit of God as promised. And this was the beginning of his reign. Unfortunately, as many of you here are familiar with, Saul's first term as king didn't end up well. It didn't end well. He had a problem with the fear of man, which caused him to constantly disobey God. And because of that, God was removing him from the throne. Turn a couple pages with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. God was replacing Saul as the king of Israel, and the man who was to take his place was who? David. And chapter 16 pretty much records that very thing. It records the transition from Saul as the king of Israel to young David, the shepherd. But what I want to draw your attention to is what happened to Saul once David replaced him as a king. Look at verse 14 of chapter 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. It tormented him. I'll read that again. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The spirit of God departed from him once he was removed from the throne. We saw that once he was anointed as king in chapter 10, he was given the privilege of having God's spirit rush upon him. And not too long after that, that privilege was revoked. At one moment, he was filled with the Spirit of God. At the next, he was empty of it. And remember the reason I'm bringing you to this passage, guys. One of the distinctive characteristics of the church was the fact that the Spirit of God indwelt its members permanently. We clearly see that this was not the way God operated. This was not the way God operated. His spirit, rather than dwelling in the the believer for good, came and went as he pleased in the Old Testament. Another great example of this could be found in Psalm 51. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read from it for you. 
Psalm chapter 51 is a very uh, well-known passage because it's David's repentant prayer to God after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Listen to what he prays for in verse 11. Just listen closely. He says to God, Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I'll read that again. He prays, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David had just sinned in a horrific way by sleeping with another man's wife and getting her pregnant. And then after learning of her pregnancy, he ordered for her husband to be killed. You guys know the story. This man, David, who God says in 1 1 Samuel was a man after his own heart, had done a horrific thing, and he realized that. He realized that. And as a result, he goes to the Lord to repent from his sins. And one of the things he asked for is that God doesn't take his spirit from him. Though Psalm 51 is a wonderful story of repentance, the reason I make mention of it is to bring to light The fact that God's spirit, contrary to how he began to operate at the start of the church, he operated differently during the Old Testament. He didn't permanently dwell in all believers. This is very clear from the passage in 1 Samuel concerning Saul, and it's very clear from David's word in Psalm 51. This, however, all changed once the Lord Jesus Christ had come to the earth. One of the promises that Christ and the Father made to the 12 disciples before he had left, he promised them and he promised all other individuals who would believe in him. And essentially, he made a promise to the church. And that was that they were to receive his spirit for good. For good. Let's go back to the New Testament. Turn with me to John chapter 14. Fourth book of the New Testament, John 14. Here you have that wonderful promise from our Lord to his disciples, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And again, it's really amazing, guys, because we as the church, we as believers are partakers of this promise. Look at what he says in verse 15 to the disciples. If you love me, You will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. There was to be no more coming and departing from the spirit with the believer, but like Jesus said here, In John 14, the helper was to come and to be with him forever. This promise, ladies and gentlemen, this promise of the Holy Spirit indefinitely, permanently, was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. When God sent his spirit down on 120 individuals gathered in the upper room. That day was the very beginning. It was the beginning of the church. So now that we've examined one of the two characteristics that made the church unique to this age, I want to turn our attention to the second distinctive characteristic of the church. And this one I'm almost certain will be uh, a bit more familiar with some of you here tonight. The second distinctive characteristic of the church 
was the fact that it was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. For those of you here who are unaware of what the term Gentile means, it is literally defined as a person who is not Jewish. And so another aspect of the church that made it distinct from anything that existed during the Old Testament was the fact that its members were made up of Jews and non-Jews. During the beginning of the Old Testament, God had decided to choose a people uh, that would be a witness to the world for his name's sake and ultimately for his glory. And those people that he chose to use for his own purpose were the people of Israel, the Jews. Uh, God, beginning in the book of Exodus, began to set the Jewish people apart from the rest of the world. Listen to how one author puts it, speaking on this issue. He wrote, before the cross of Christ, mankind was divided into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. The Old and the New Testament both make very clear what caused this distinction. It was the covenants God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with their descendants through Moses. These covenants were for Israel alone and separated her from all other nations on the face of the earth, making God's chosen people absolutely unique. Israel was segregated from other peoples by the Mosaic law and by her special relation with the one who calls himself the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, end quote. The Jewish people, because God had set them apart and made a covenantal promise with them, were not to associate with outsiders. They were not to associate with Gentiles. But once the church began, in Acts chapter 2, that all seemed to change. Once Christ had died and resurrected, the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles was broken down. It dissipated. Let's turn to Acts chapter 11 to get a picture of this. Acts chapter 11. And just a quick side note. Do you in this room recognize the the benefits of that? Do you recognize the ramifications of the fact that once Christ had left this earth and ascended, that that wall of hostility was broken? Raise your hand if you're Jew in this room. Look around. There's no Jews. There's no Jews. That, that doesn't come to any surprise to any of us, but we get to share in the promise of God. We who were once far off, we've been brought in. As Romans 11 says, we've been grafted in. That's beautiful. You've turned to Acts chapter 11. We're going to read starting in verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that, that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, i.e. the Jews, criticized him saying, verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You ate with these guys. There were individuals who had gotten the word that Peter had been associating with men who were not of Jewish descent. And this didn't sit well with them. But for one to properly understand their, their childish reaction you would have to consider their history. See, in the history, 
In history past, God's people didn't associate with pagan nations in any way, shape, or form. And so for their leader to be doing such a thing that God condemned at one point was a major offense. However, these individuals who criticized Peter were ignorant as to what God was doing in the other nations. He was extending his grace and his blessings through Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations. And Peter had previously been told that very news at the beginning of Acts chapter 10 in a vision. And so he responded to these individuals who criticized him in verse 4. But Peter began and explained to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in the trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts and prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Verse 8. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the, but the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call uncommon. This happened three times, and all was drawn up against into heaven, again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go, go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. Verse 14, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, that is the Gentiles. It fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And look at what these guys who criticized Peter for hanging out with Gentiles, look at, look, look at what they say. And they glorify God saying, then to the Gentiles, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That leads to life. This was extraordinary. It was unprecedented. The gathering of both Jews and Gentiles who have repented and placed faith in Christ. This was the start of something new. It was the start of the church. Turn over with me a few books to the right, to the book of Ephesians. You're in Acts. We're going to flip over to Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and then Ephesians. Paul does a wonderful job on explaining this distinctive characteristic of the church, both Jews and Gentiles, in chapter 2. And remember who Paul is speaking to here. This was his letter to the church located in Ephesus. These were Gentile Christians he was writing to. And look at what he says to these non-Jewish Christians starting in verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you 
were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and he has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and might reconcile us both and might reconcile us both to God and the body through the cross therefore killing the hostility verse 17 and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul saw fit to remind the Gentile believers of who they were before Christ had come. He tells them that they were once far off, alienated from God, alienated from the promises of God. But because Christ's work on the cross he broke down the wall of hostility. And all people, no matter their ethnicity, were allowed to become fellow citizens of the household of God. Paul continues this line of, of thought moving into chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 with me. Starting in verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of, for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I, have, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And what was this mystery? He tells us in verse 6, This mystery is that the Gentiles, our fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so there it is. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the church, which was composed of both Jews and Gentiles, is something that did not exist before the coming of Christ. It was a mystery. That aspect of the church is indeed a distinct characteristic so now that we've examined both distinctive characteristics of the church in detail, it's safe to say that we have thoroughly proven our initial premise, which was that the church actually had a beginning and didn't always exist. And moving on from there, we've answered our initial questions of whether or not such a gathering like the one in Acts chapter 2 ever existed in the Old Testament. It didn't. It didn't. Acts 2 is the beginning, ladies and gentlemen. The day of Pentecost was the beginning. Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 told his disciples that he was going to build his church and the gates of hell weren't going to prevail against it. And he has held true to that statement. He began the construction of that building on the day of Pentecost with 120 believers gathered in a small room and he has been building ever since. And so I ask the question to you all here, are you a part of the construct? 
Are you a part of the building? Have you joined the church? As I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but to think of the idea of a team, especially as a former athlete. And there was a commercial that popped up in my mind. It's a commercial by the U.S. Army, and, and for some reason, this commercial has always stuck with me. Let me read this the words of the, from the commercial for you. It goes like this. You guys might recognize it. Quote, they didn't join this team to win championships or to become famous. They joined because there is important work to be done, and only some are able to do it. They are brighter, better educated, led, and equipped than any other team in history. They are doctors, lawyers, engineers, technologists, and combat troops all prepared for whatever comes their way. You'll find them where the lights don't flash, and the only contract they sign is with themselves and with their country. One day, they may be asked what they did to make a difference in the world, and they can respond, I became a soldier, end quote. I really do enjoy that commercial every time I watch it, and I have the utmost respect for our army and our military troops. They do a great service for us. But though I respect our troops and our government to the utmost, I'm going to have to respectively disagree with the statements made in that commercial. The U.S. Army is not the greatest team in the history of man. And its troops aren't better led and better equipped than any other team in history. These statements that were made in that commercial belong to one team and one team alone. That's the bride of Jesus. You better believe it. The Church of Christ is the greatest team that ever was assembled. The Church of Christ is a team that is better equipped and better led than any other team in history past. Its members are unified in their mission. Its foundation is unshakable. Its message is unstoppable. Its leader incomprehensible. I want to make a plea with you non-Christians in this room. Come join the greatest team in the world. The team whose leader promised that not even the supernatural powers of hell will prevail against it. The team that has the privilege to be able to suffer and die with a firm hope and a future peace, a future peace. Non-Christian. Abandon the world and all its empty promises. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sickness. Come join the team. Come join the church of Christ today. And so turning to the Christian, what's the application for us? Does this message about the beginning of the church have any application to you? Absolutely. Application number one, praise God. It should be praise to God, that he's allowed you who were once far off, Gentiles, to come into his fold. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, it's only by the grace of God that you were saved. It's only by the grace of God that I was saved. And because of that fact, our praise, honor, and glory ought to be to God, the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, who have allowed for us to partake in the promises of eternal glory who have allowed for us to be a part of the church. Believer, application number one is praise be to God. Praise be to God. 
And there's another application for the Christian. Application number two for the Christian here today is to follow the model of the early church. Follow the model. Turn back with me to where we started the beginning of this message, Acts chapter 2 as we close. I want us to consider an important verse for us all as we participate as members of the church. Look at verse 42 of Acts, Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. The day mentioned in this verse is who? The church. And Dr. Luke records for us what the church devoted themselves to from the very beginning. And the obvious application for us as believers in the 21st century is to follow the blueprint. It's to follow the model that God has set for us in his word. And so there were basically three things from verse 42 that the church devoted themselves to. And those three things are the word of God, prayer, and fellowship. I'll begin by talking about fellowship. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And I'm sure that this comes as no surprise to many of us here that this was the key ingredient for the early church. The New Testament is, the New Testament is filled with all types of one another verses, which we ourselves as a ministry study not too long ago. And the reason that the New Testament is filled with those verses is because this marathon, this marathon that we call the Christian faith was never meant to be raced alone. It wasn't meant to be raced alone. I need you guys. Vice versa, you need me. It was never meant to be done on an island by yourself, but rather with a team of saints who have one spirit, one goal, one Lord. And so we ought to seek out Christian fellowship in our own lives as we follow the model of the early church. Moving on to the next thing that the early church devoted themselves to, they devote themselves to prayer. And prayer is something that if you want to learn about more, I encourage you to join Cross Life on its winter retreat that's coming up next week. Because there we will devote our time to understanding and practicing prayer. But prayer is a non-negotiable for the church. That's obvious. As fallen human beings who are insufficient to carry out the task that the Lord Jesus has called us to accomplish, of course we need help. And not just any type of help, but the help from God, the Father, the help from Jesus Christ and his spirit and his word. And so as members of part of the church, we ought to make much of prayer. We ought to make it our daily practice to approach the throne of God. I'm being challenged in this daily. We as members of the church ought to be obedient to the apostles' command to the church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, which says what? Pray without ceasing. Moving on to the last and final thing the church devoted themselves to, the early church devoted themselves to the word of God. The holy scriptures. I can't begin to speak on the importance of the word of God in the church there's a sense in which the church can't even be deemed church. They aren't devoted to the word of God. And that statement actually 
has merit, biblically speaking. According to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, which you'll eventually get to you to in your community groups, the church is the place where truth is to be lifted high, where truth is to be exalted. I'll say that again. The church is the place where truth is to be exalted. I know no better man to speak on this than one of my heroes, Dr. John MacArthur, who has devoted his life and ministry to proclaiming the word of God faithfully, verse by verse. Listen to what he says concerning this issue of the word of God in the church. He writes, proclaiming the word of God is is the primary function of the church. I grieve that people in some churches hear nothing but sermonettes. Some preachers merely do counseling from the pulpit or deal with political and ethical issues. In many Sunday school classes at other churches, people don't really learn much about the Bible, so they guess regarding what it teaches. But the church's most important function, I'll say that again, quoting Dr. MacArthur, but the church's most important function is to proclaim the word of God in an understandable, direct, and authoritative way. Are you in a Bible-believing church? Are you in a Bible-teaching church? If you're not, I'll I'll be honest, leave that church. As a believer, I exhort you to leave that church. It's not a church that Christ would condone. It's not a church at all. Dr. MacArthur's right on in what he says. And that's not just because he's John MacArthur. He's a mere man. But because the Bible says that, it affirms what he says. Because the Bible calls the church, again, where the place is the place where God's truth is to be proclaimed. Now my question to the believer here tonight Are you devoted to those things the early church devoted itself to? According to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Are you devoted to fellowship, prayer, and the word of God? I hope you are. I hope you are. I hope we are. Those things ought to be lifted up. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the opportunity to come here and to to share your word, to open up your Bible, which you love, which your word says you exalt above your name. I thank you for your holy text, Lord. In it we find life. In it we grow in our holiness. In it and by enduring it, being obedient to it, we will eventually be glorified. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the church. Thank you for the bride of Christ. Lord, would I love her more? Would we love her more? Because we're Christians, we're Christ followers, and Christ loves her. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.